We're going to start reading actually in chapter 5, specifically in verse 22. I would remind you as you turn this, this is an amazing thing to think about God's mighty power that uh, he has the ability to write a book with multiple readers in mind. So that when this was originally written, God had in mind the people who would originally hear it and the people that would hear it 10 years later and 100 years later and 1,000 years later and even you. This is God's word written for you. Exodus chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you've not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. With a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob is God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am. Am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. 
Let's ask God's blessing upon his word yet again. Father, we have read your word. And you have spoken. We ask now that in the preaching of your word, you would speak again. Oh God, give life and light that we might understand and believe. We are such weak creatures. Give help. In Jesus' name, amen. I appreciate uh, the various ways that God has made people, the different gifts that he's given them. There are some gifts that I'm like, I understand it, I get it. I mean, I don't have it, but I appreciate it. But there are a few gifts that really kind of mystify me and uh, surprise me and impress me quite as well as those people who have the ability to turn a phrase. You know the people I'm talking about, the ones that like just kind of off the cuff can say like the most memorable and impactful and wise things. I mean, sometimes politicians have this. I don't want to talk politics. I mean, you know, Margaret Thatcher, the famous line about the government, your governing's easy when you're spending other people's money. I mean, I'd love to be able to think of those things off the, just off the cuff. It's even more impressive when it's somebody that you would think like, there's no way this person has like kind of any sort of real wisdom. And they come up with a line that you're just like, wow, that's genuinely impressive. The Rolling Stones. Fountain of wisdom. Can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, I guess you might find you get what you need. Now, of course, we would take that in a totally different way they intended it. I think one of my favorites of these is from that great repository of wisdom, Mike Tyson. You laugh because you know him now, but back in the day, he was the scariest man on planet Earth, wasn't he? And when he was the scariest man on planet Earth, he had a famous line from one of his interviews. Uh, somebody was asking him about how he was going to beat so-and-so, and they were this great technical boxer, and they were you know, the, the, the great strategist of a generation. And Mike Tyson looked at the interviewer and said, Ever, well, I can't do the voice. It's the high lisp, you know. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> that was Mike Tyson's philosophy of boxing. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And if you ever watched any of his fights, you know exactly what he did. He punched people in the mouth, and they didn't know what to do, and then he knocked them out. Unfortunately, I think a lot of times when we go to, to kind of process our Christianity and process our walk, we forget Mike Tyson's wisdom. The idea that everybody has it all together in some form or fashion until they get punched in the mouth. I mean, i got to plan how my life's going to go until something difficult happens. I mean, I know what I'm doing. I can, I can handle it until cancer. I mean, I, I, whoa. Or until we lose that job. I can't believe I got fired. Where's the money going to come from? Or the pipes leak again. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Moses thus far has not had a very good plan, if we're going to be honest. His plan has been somewhat kind of trust God, but sometimes kind of argue with him a lot. A lot. Until you get to chapter 5 and it's finally hit the part of Exodus where God has Moses finally moving. Moses is um, being obedient in a fashion. 
He's had his first kind of interchange with Pharaoh. Again, it's not exactly the way God told him to do. He told him to take the elders of Israel with him. He didn't do that. He told him to say the exact words. He didn't do that. But he goes in to meet with Pharaoh and he tells, in essence, in that great Yule Brenner voice, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, nope. It ain't happening. I'm not going to let him go. And in fact, not only am I not going to let him go, the fact that you're even in my face says they're not working hard enough. As a good parent of teenagers understands that when they're misbehaving, oftentimes it's because they're not working hard enough. And so he makes Israel go work harder. We get to the end of chapter 5 and there's this great uh, interchange, this great kind of conflict between Moses and Aaron and the, uh, the foremen of Israel. These are the men who are Israelites by trade, I mean Israelites by, by birth, but have um, kind of really largely switched sides to the Egyptians. And they have this kind of kerfuffle, we might say, where they come to Moses and say, look at what you've done. I'm putting it in kind of modern language, it would be, how dare you? How dare you? It's your fault, Moses. How dare you? Look at what has happened. It's all your fault. Moses' great and grand plan to take Israel out of Egypt, because God and this burning bush told him to, has suddenly been punched in the mouth. I mean, Pharaoh said no. I mean, it's like Moses didn't have a category for that, even though God had already told him, I'm going to harden his heart. (laughs) He's not going to play nice. And you get Moses in end of chapter 5, verse 22, with this really challenging response to Pharaoh saying no, Israel turning on Moses Moses turns to the Lord. Now, again, we need to applaud Moses. He's going to the Lord here. This is in direct contrast to the the Israelites just a couple of verses previous that went to Pharaoh, looking for support and solutions from Pharaoh. Moses is doing good here. He's going to God. But what's his answer or what's his uh, prayer? (laughs) Lord, why are you doing this evil thing to the people? I mean, why did you even send me? I love that question. That's the kind of passive-aggressive question I would have asked my parents when I was intentionally being disobedient, knowing that it would be difficult for them to spank me, but I could be unbelievably disrespectful with it. Why did you tell me to do it if you weren't going to help me? If you weren't going to empower me to get my chores done? If you were going to make it hard for me, why did you tell me to do it? Whose fault is it? Is it yours? In fact, actually, verse 23 says, I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. He's done evil to the people. He's done evil to me. In fact, it's just all gone to pot. You haven't delivered your people at all. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I appreciate Moses. As he's writing this, how accurately and candidly and beautifully and honestly he captures me. That here he's run into a roadblock that he wasn't expecting. 
He's run into a person who's hindering his obedience. He's run into something that he wasn't looking for. He's running into something that's making life hard. And he captures one of the internal monologues that happens in Christians all over the world all of the time. God, why are bad things happening to me if you've promised to bless me? Why are you not helping? Again, maybe you're having a great day today. I hope you are. Maybe you're feeling good and your job is great and your family's wonderful and your, and your children or grandchildren or neighbors are delightful and you have no conflict. And, and in fact, actually, when you walked to the bathroom this morning, you clicked your heels, you know, jumped and did that little <laughs> And when you went to brush your teeth, you had that little shine on the front tooth that only happens in the movies. Maybe that was you and I hope that it is. But more realistically, most likely, we're actually in a probably fairly similar situation to Moses, most of us. We're wrestling through saying, God, I know you've called me to be obedient. And I know you've called me to be holy. Why on earth have you put this irritating person in my life then? Or why on earth did you put cancer in my life? Why on earth did you put sickness in my life? Why on earth did you put this complication in my job, in my life? I mean, don't you want me to be obedient? How on earth am I supposed to be patient with all of these children in front of me? This is part of why I love the scriptures is because they capture people so honestly. I mean, it's wrapped in a different culture, but it's the same response that we've all had a thousand times over to God. Look, God, if you wanted to do this, how come you're not doing it? Because I know it ain't working for me. I'd like to, at this point, I guess, kind of pause and acknowledge the Lord's infinite mercy. That the Bible doesn't end at the end of chapter 5. It doesn't have like a postscript or something, and God incinerated Moses for talking back. Could have. Instead, he gives a very complex response. And I think one that is key for us, particularly those of us that are up to our eyeballs with difficulty. Chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord says to Moses, (laughs) you can insert the laugh. I think it's appropriate. (laughs) Now you will see what I will do. It's Part promise, I would almost even read it as part threat. Oh, little Moses, you've doubted. Oh, you will see what I will do. And I think in in first part, even acknowledging that there's a bit of a timeline discrepancy. That's actually one of the key parts to Moses' complaint is there's a timeline discrepancy. Moses is coming and saying, well, look, you wanted me to be this, but I'm not that yet. You wanted me to be a, a hero to bring Israel out of Egypt, but guess what? It's not yet. 
And God in his infinite wisdom is like, Moses, you got your verb tenses wrong, friend. You were expecting this to happen the way that you planned it. It's not about your plans. It's not about your verb tenses. It's not about when you want things to happen. It's about when I have planned for things to happen. When we get to the New Testament, we have the same idea introduced throughout all of the the New Testament writings where it says, in the fullness of time, Jesus did such and such. When he was ready, Jesus did such and such. God is at work in his own timeline. Some of you, I would encourage you, just be patient. God is at work. It's just not the time you want it to be. You're ready for the solution to be here right now. I got to have it. I got to have it. I got to have it. He's at work. Be patient. But then what he follows with is, now you'll see what I will do to Pharaoh. What is God going to do? For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. I read this in preparation for the sermon. And the first thing is, man, I, I can't believe the ESV's got a typo. It's got the wrong pronoun. God says, for with a strong hand, I will send them. No, that's not actually what he says, is it? For with a strong hand, Pharaoh will send them out. With a strong hand, Pharaoh will drive them out of his land. This is, I think, probably the most surprising part of his promise. That God is managing the verb tenses, so to speak, because he's managing the mechanism. He has his his plan anchored inside time and space because it's not just concerned about how you end. He's concerned with how you get there. It's not just concerned with, hey, I want to bring Israel out of Egypt. What is he saying? Look, I'm going to bring Israel out of Egypt and who am I going to use to do it? I'm going to use Pharaoh himself. You want to see how mighty God is. Oh, Moses, you're doubting, you're grumbling, you're complaining. You want to see how big God is. I will use my own enemy to defeat himself. Pharaoh's about to play himself, fighting against God. God is displaying his mighty power and explaining to Moses the the fashion in which Israel will be redeemed. Pharaoh himself will be on board. Again, this is so incredibly important for us to have categories as as Christians because we need to understand Pharaoh is a terrible human being. He's not a good guy. This is not the kind of guy you're like, well, he was put in bad circumstances. So, you know, if he had a different kind of background, maybe we'd, we'd be friends. Pharaoh is the caricature, he's the stereotype of evil against God, and God is saying he's going to use his own enemies to defeat them. Putting this into modern language, God is saying, I will accomplish my purposes through cancer, not in spite of it. 
I will accomplish my purposes through job loss, not in spite of it. I will accomplish my purposes through sickness, through difficulty, through trial, so that I show my victory over even those things. We get a really fun fulfillment of this in the New Testament, don't we? Jesus, Son of God, Son of Man, I will declare my victory over death by dying. I will use death to defeat itself. It will will take Jesus for a time, but he won't stay dead. And in doing so, neither will we. That's why it's so important, actually, that we understand the Apostles' Creed. Get that he descended into hell part. So important. When you die, where do you go? Immediately to the Father's side. Because Jesus used death to defeat death. Why is that going to be important for us to think about? Well, one is it helps us appreciate Jesus, and that's always a good thing. Two is it it actually, it reshapes our emotional kind of map, our emotional palette when we go to think about cancer or go to think about trials or go to think about the things that give us the most amount of tears. Think about the one thing in your life that's making you cry more than anything else. And understand that is God's tool, even for your own redemption. Kind of takes a little bit of the sting out of it, doesn't it? To know that God's using even those things. That's how mighty our God is. That's how great our God is. He continues on. It's not just stops there. Again, he could have. It's (laughs) it's amazing already. Verse 2, God spoke to Moses, said to him, this is your other next one, like, pull. Brain kind of explodes a little bit. I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I got that. As God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them. He actually gives a little bit of a key as to what God is doing at this point, too, with Moses. The difficulty is designed for intimacy. That's part of the design for this. Is, it's designed to cultivate intimacy with God himself. To think that Moses is interacting with the Lord. I, I, I can't wait to have conversations with Moses in heaven. I can't wait to have conversations with Moses in heaven with no sin, where I will not say things inappropriately or inaccurately to him. Like, I don't want to be snarky, but I really want to ask him, be like, what were you thinking, man? But God's response here is spectacular to say, look, Moses, you're complaining about this difficulty. And part of the design of the difficulty is so that you would know me in a greater or deeper or more intimate fashion. 
And I'm going to suggest this is a great weakness in a lot of our thinking. Uh, I read a book a number of years ago where the gentleman made the argument that the, the number one ethic, that means what's good and bad, what determines right and wrong, the number one ethic in America is avoid pain. We live our lives by an avoidance ethic. Now, it takes all kinds of different forms. You hear people out just, you know, outside of the Bible saying, well, it doesn't matter what you do as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. Avoid pain. And we hear people interacting, well, what does good parenting look like? Well, it's keeping my kids from getting hurt. I'm going to suggest that's not the correct answer. You actually want them to get hurt, but get hurt in the right ways, in the right places so they learn and don't die later. So much of our lives are structured with avoiding pain. And the problem with that is that when we come into Christianity, we use Christianity as a mechanism to try to avoid pain and miss the point of the pain. Here God's explained part of the pain is so that Moses will know him. And Moses is hard-headed. He's missing the point. God's like, look, Moses... Wake up. The point of this is so that you would know me, so that you would love me, so that you would trust me, so that we may be together, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And I'd love to say that we never struggle down that same path ourselves. But I'll just pause for a second and think about your prayer life. Now, for some of you, that's active and robust, and you have a rich prayer life. Some of you, your prayer life is, we'll lovingly say, a bit lacking or thin. How much of the percentage of your prayer life do you spend praying on you or other people avoiding pain? When we pray for the sick, which we should do, are we praying only that they would avoid pain? Or do we pray that God uses the pain? Or do we pray that they would even know the Lord through their sickness? Again, it shapes how we we interact with the scriptures. How do we interact with Job? Is Job's life so bad that, oh man, he had a rough thing the whole way through and it it only got good at the end because he, he was freed from pain? Or is it to say the whole point of the book of Job is a man comes to know the Lord with greater intimacy? So often we get caught up on the side benefits of Christianity and miss the love of God. We get caught up in the benefits that Christ provides and sometimes kind of forget about Him. That's part of why I love the table. This table is a challenge to us. In so much as it also nourishes us at the same time, it's a challenge because it is a table where we are to commune with Christ. It's one of the the four major things the church is supposed to do as a church. Scriptures, pray, um, sacrament, and fellowship. And the biggie, I mean, they're all about this, but interacting, being intimate, loving, and knowing God. Again, it's amazing. God is so merciful. He doesn't stop there. Again, he could. 
I mean, any of these one, any of these things, one of them alone is worth writing tons and tons of books about meditating on for the rest of your life. But he continues in his tender mercy towards Moses and tender mercy toward us. I've made myself known to them. Into verse 3, this intimate knowledge. Into verse 4, I established my covenant. This is my promise. It is trustworthy and true. I cannot, I will not, I have not broken it. You may rest in that. Takes it back to his own character. Give, gives Moses something to contemplate there. Remember my promises. Then into verse 5, moreover, as if that weren't enough. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel. I love this one. It's like, Moses, do you think I don't know what's going on? That's kind of the heart of this response. Do you think I don't know what's going on? I'm God. I'm outside of time. I know the end from the beginning. I see the very inner heart of men and women, boys and girls. Do you think I don't know the difficulty that you're facing? Of course I know. And my commands for obedience, my commands for your actions, my plans, my provisions, it's all within that knowledge. Again, important for us to think about as we wrestle with various sicknesses, various frustrations, various difficulties, various trials. It's not like God doesn't know. It's not like he's ignorant of our hurts and heartaches. For those of you that weep private tears that you think no one else knows about, God does. And it's not an abstract knowledge of like, oh, yes, I I know that gentleman's struggling. It's an intimate knowledge. He knows the inner workings of the human heart. He made it. And he made it in his image. And if that weren't enough, we now have Christ who is in every way fully human so that he is able to indeed sympathize with those he ministers to. Six. Therefore, say to the people... I am the Lord. I will do this. Take it to the bank. My paraphrase, my translation. I am the Lord. Say it to the people. I will do this. Verse 7. So I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. This intimacy, verse 6, with great acts of judgment, it will be God's glory. It will happen. Verse 8, back to the covenant. I will bring you into the land that I promised in Genesis 15 as a possession. I will do this. I am the Lord. And Moses speaks to the people of Israel and they don't listen. And I love how God here gives explanation. It's not that they're dumb. Right, we don't read this and go, well, man, Israel, they're just dummies. They're just fools. Well, I mean, they are fools, but not in this way. They can't see clearly because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Their minds are clouded. Verse 10. <laughs> I love this. The Lord says to Moses, go in, talk to Pharaoh. Tell him to let my people go. Moses says to the Lord, um, about that. 
dude has gumption. Um, God, uh, behold, the people of Israel not listen to me. How do you expect Pharaoh to listen to me if they don't listen to me? And maybe we're just going to insert here that the problem is me. It's not you, God. It's me. I mean, I know you're not weak, but maybe I'm too weak for you to use. For I am of uncircumcised lips. This, again, is is comical to me. That, again, he uses his own voice as the problem. God, um, I I can't speak. I don't speak well. Maybe I stutter. I can't say the word illegibly. I can't say that when I need to say it. Um, uh, I need you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the weakest link. This is posturing at its best. God's already given him Aaron to speak. He's already told him it will be accomplished. He's anchored everything in God's character. This now is what we call an excuse. (laughs) And I love verse 13. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge. Go. Okay. Go bring the people of Israel out. I would suggest maybe for us that are in that moment, maybe you're that person that has those private tears that I don't know about, but God does. Maybe you're that person that has very public tears that I do know about, and God does too. Maybe you will be. Maybe you have been. I might lovingly encourage us Let the voice of the Psalms be our voice. I think Moses' response here is probably not a great one. Because he takes the cop-out silly excuse. Oh, I'm the problem. I'm the weak link. It's God. He could use the carpet to bring the people out of Israel if he wanted to. If that was what glorified him and he wanted to do that, he could do that. He's done stranger things. He's used donkeys. He's used a burning bush just a couple of chapters previously. He's going to use the sea. He's going to use frogs. He's going to use blood. He's going to use an angel of death. He use whatever he wants to use. That is not to say that we have to be okay all of the time. It's not to say that we're supposed to ignore our hurts. Right? We're not a marathon runner that's like, just keep running no matter how bad it hurts and your knees explode halfway through and you're like, well, that's inconvenient. Now I can't walk forever. <laughs> and instead, actually, just go, go to God and ask that he would use the pain so that you would know him. Friends, that, that's a really simple request. And I'm going to suggest probably one of the most important you're going to hear for quite a while. We live this side of the grave. Again, those catchy one-liners. Life is pain. This side of the grave, there's actually some truth to that. May it be that we as God's people devote ourselves to using it correctly. Instead of following the path of Moses here, he's going to turn into a hero. Be patient. 
But instead of following the path of grumbling and complaining, instead, might it be that we go to God and say, oh, Lord, please use this, even in ways I don't understand. Because, again, you think about with the disciples. Jesus dies shortly after he gives them the table. And you got to think, man, they're baffled. And how bad would that hurt? And how bad would that, they'd be confused. And you can see they fail pretty hard right after that. I mean, they fail really hard. They go into hiding and stop listening to each other and some backbiting and things like that. They, they hard fail. I mean, turn on Jesus, betray him, kind of terrible things. Not realizing that what they're experiencing is the first days of victory. <laughs> the war is over. They're just not aware of it yet. Might it be that we trust God? In light of what he's doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who has accomplished victory on the cross. Forgive us our sins. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh God, use the difficulties that you have given for your glory that we may know you and love you and believe you. In Jesus' name, amen.